All right. Well, good morning, church. Uh, hey, listen, so this morning we have arrived um, at the second to last parable in our parable series. Uh, but before we jump in to the parable, I want to take a moment here on the front end of my message uh, to bring just some further clarification and uh, additional explanation um, concerning the announcement that was made last week about partnership and membership. So for those of you who were here last week, you know that we started uh, our time together uh, by me giving an announcement about some of the changes and shifts that we are making to our partnership and membership process. Uh, But since last Sunday, we've received several questions um, from people in our body who we know and love, who've been here a really long time. And really, they just had questions. They just wanted a bit more clarity on what all was said and what everything meant. And I think something that I've learned in that process is uh, there's this thing called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge is you are thinking about something and praying about something and processing something for months. Um, and so you just got to get up and talk and hope people fill in the blanks. <laughs> and so uh, based on the questions that we received, there was a lot of people who just had questions. They wanted to know uh, what it all meant and if we can just uh, further clarify. Um, And so not only did we do that at the individual level, but since I made the announcement in this setting, I want to follow up in this setting as well. The main thing that people had questions about was the elder interview. Uh, They heard the word interview and the word interview can carry a lot of different connotations, right? It has a lot of baggage. It can be a very intimidating word. And so I think when people heard interview, they thought of job interview. You know, at the end of a job interview, you either get hired or you get rejected, you know? So you hear an interview, you think, okay, well, looks like I'm gonna get hired or rejected at the end of this process. Um, another thing that people think of when they think of an interview is they think of an FBI interrogation, right? Like you're sitting in a cold, dark room, everything's metal, and there's just a, a spotlight on your face. You don't even know who's asking you questions, right? You don't even know who, who is interrogating you. Um, And so for those reasons, I think people heard interview and maybe they thought it was worse than what it actually was. All it is, is if you go through the, if you are a new partner and you go through the class, you sit down to have a two-way conversation with one of our elders. Just a conversation, okay? And here's the thing. Uh, If you are a couple, you sit down with an elder and their wife. And if you are single, you also sit down with an elder and their wife. And so it's not just you and the elder, it's uh, the elder and their wife, right? And here's the other thing. It's not in some scary, mysterious, dark room that we have, you know, out, out, out in uh, Siberia, okay? It's, uh, it's over in the hub where there is sunlight and there is uh, coffee and there are other human beings present, okay? It's just a conversation. Um, with an elder and their wife. Now, what will the conversation be about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what you are going to talk about if you decide to go through this process. They're going to ask you about a couple things. They're going to ask you, are you a believer? Yes or no. They are going to ask you to share a brief testimony. Brief, right? We don't need your whole life story. No one's doing a credit check. There's no systematic theology test, uh, No one's patting you down. We don't need your social security and nothing like that, right? They're just asking you, are you a believer? If so, can you share your testimony? And then they're going to ask you, did you read the what we believe document, which is all the beliefs that we have? 
Do you have any questions about it? Are you in agreement with it? And if you say yes, it's done. That's all it is, right? From there, they help you figure out how to connect. They help you figure out what your next step is as far as getting connected in our body. And so it quite literally is for the purpose of getting to know you and for you to get to know us. We just want to make sure you are a follower of Jesus and that you at least adhere to our three main doctrines, which are our doctrines around the gospel, the Bible, and about God. Those are all pretty basic things. Do you believe what we believe about God, the Bible, and the gospel, right? Once you go through that, then the elder will ask you, how can we help you get connected? What do you believe your next step is? And they will help you take your your next step. So, biblically speaking, as elders, we believe in light of scripture that we are called to oversee We are called to shepherd, we are called to care for, we are called to feed, we are called to love, we are called to serve, we are called to pastor, and we are called to pray for God's flock. But none of those things can happen unless we know who you are and you know who we are. Something that I mentioned last week that I want to make sure I mention here again on the front end is that we are a part of God's universal church. If you are sitting here today and you are a believer of the gospel, you are a follower of Jesus. The Bible teaches that there is a universal church of all the people who are believers in, on planet earth right now, right? But every local church is a local expression of the universal church. And so the way I described it last week is that if we are ambassadors, if we are citizens of God's kingdom, if we are ambassadors of God, then every local church serves almost as an embassy. And if the Lord leads you to be a part of our body, All this process does is it allows us to come alongside you and affirm that we see you and that we we affirm that you are a citizen of heaven based on our conversation, based on the, uh, the, the process we go through. Not to confirm it. We can't make you a believer. We are just here to affirm it and we are here to help you, pastor you, know you, love you, uh, shepherd you. But, but we believe that the only way that can happen is if we actually know you, okay? So it's not a systematic theology test. It's not a credit check. Um, it's just a conversation for you to get to know us and for us to get to know you. So if I had any way misrepresented that last week and gave the impression that it was more than that, I apologize. That was definitely not my intention. And if you still have any questions about the process at all, Um, At the end of our service, during the response time, we are going to have elders up here. We're going to have our response team up here, but some of the people on the team will be our elders, and they will be the ones with the elder badge. You can come up, and you can ask any question that you have. Um, If you don't feel comfortable doing that, you can email us um, uh, at elders at highpointmemphis.com, and we would love to connect with you and answer any questions that you may have. Cool? Amen? All right. Well, with all that said, let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, This morning, we are in the second to last week of our parable series. In a couple weeks, we are going to be starting a uh, uh, Christmas series that will take us through the end of the year. Our Advent series will take us through the end of the year. Uh, But this morning, we are in the second to last parable of our series. And we are looking at the parable of the coveting rich man the coveting rich man. And that passage is found in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to please turn there. 
And we are going to be in Luke 12, verses 13 through 34. Luke 12, 13 through 34. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you are ready, say, I'm ready. Here's what it says. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Everyone say, take care. And be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. Everyone say fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider, everyone say consider. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek. Everyone say seek. seek. His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is the word of the Lord, and let me pray for us. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you also, Lord, for the sufficiency of your work. And God, I pray right now, Lord, that even in light of everything we've gotten to celebrate today, God, we thank you for the baptisms in the first service. We thank you for the baptism in the second service. God, we are grateful for, for baptism because it reminds us it is a physical representation of what is true internally. Uh, it is a physical representation of us being buried and being resurrected again in Christ. Lord, we are grateful for the good news of the gospel. And we are also grateful, God, that you have given us ordinances like the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism to be reminded again of the good news of, the, of grace that is true in the gospel. 
God, as we approach this passage, I pray, Lord, that you would keep me from saying anything that does not come from you. This is not an easy passage, but Lord, it's a necessary one. And so I pray, God, that you would help me in, in this moment that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, lead us, guide us, mold us, shape us, expose us with your law, edify us with your love, and enable us, Lord, to give you everything, including our material things, including our money. Lord, anything that we are relying on, anything that we are building on that is not you will eventually let us down. It is shakable. The only thing that is unshakable is your word and your work. So thank you for both of them. And I pray, Lord, that they would be displayed through this message. And we ask it and we beg it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Now, at the beginning of this passage, we find Jesus teaching. And as he teaches, he is interrupted by a man in the audience. He is preaching and teaching, and a guy randomly just cuts him off. And this individual, he interrupts Jesus because he wants his brother to split up the inheritance with him. Now, here's what we know about that day. In those days, if there were two brothers, the eldest brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger sibling would get one-third of the inheritance. So we don't know if it's that the older brother wasn't sharing it at all. We don't know if it's that the younger brother wanted more than just one-third. We don't know all the details. All we know is that this brother was bold enough and, to be honest, dumb enough to cut Jesus off while Jesus was talking about eternal things. He wants to know, can I get my money? Yes or no. Now, here's the thing. In our culture, we might see what he does as almost disrespectful, right? That's a very uncommon thing. If you are in a context like this and someone is public speaking, we in the West, we don't just interrupt. We don't just throw our hand up and say, wait a second, hold on, hold on. Hold on. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? Or, or, or let, me, let me ask you about this really personal thing that I'm dealing with. That, that is very uncommon in our culture. But what's interesting about the ancient Near East, which is the culture that Jesus is in, this is a very common thing. Many times when a rabbi would be teaching, it wouldn't just be a monologue, it would be a dialogue. At, at any point, someone in the audience can say, wait a second, that makes no sense. Or wait, can you clarify that? So for us, it's abnormal. But for them, it was a very normal, common practice. The other reason why this guy does what he does is we talked a couple weeks ago when we looked at the unjust judge that there were people in that culture who were set apart for the purpose of settling legal and financial disputes, right? But a rabbi, which is what Jesus was, was also able to settle some of these disputes. So you can go to a judge, which was someone assigned to that role, or you can go to a rabbi. And so this guy, if he's heard Jesus teach at all, he's probably heard Jesus talk about money. Because outside of hell, money is the topic that Jesus talks about the most in his ministry. And so he probably has heard Jesus talk about it a lot. And so he thinks, who better to ask than the guy who brings up money all the time? So he cuts Jesus off and he wants to know, can he get some of that paper, right? That's what he is concerned with. And for those of you who don't know, paper is another word for money, okay? It's Ebonics 101, okay? Um, so, so Jesus, he responds to the man 
And in his answer, Jesus accomplishes two things. In his response to the man, he accomplishes two very important things. The first thing Jesus accomplishes is he clarifies his purpose. He clarifies his purpose. But then the second thing Jesus does, and the second thing he accomplishes, is he actually diagnoses the man's real problem. So he clarifies his purpose, and he diagnoses the man's problem. The first thing he does is he clarifies his purpose. When the man approaches Jesus and he says, can you make a decision on this, this issue? Jesus clarifies his purpose because Jesus says, hey, brother, listen, I came to be a judge. But I didn't come to be a judge over financial matters. I didn't come to be a judge over legal matters. I came to be a judge over all matters, over spiritual matters. I came to be the judge of not just some things. I came to be the judge of all things, right? So, so Jesus responding the way he does, he clarifies what his purpose is. Here's another thing that's interesting about Jesus' response. One of the roles that a judge played, that, that actually was kind of like a political role. The people who were put in that role, they not only handled legal matters, but they were seen as political figures. And what I find interesting about Jesus' response is that by responding the way he does, he says, I didn't come to dabble in political things, which is the lie that a lot of Christians believe. A lot of Christians believe that Jesus came to be governor Jesus came to be uh, a representative. Jesus came to be president. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. I came to establish a heavenly kingdom. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, right? But a lot of us, even in light of the, the, the election last year, last week, the, 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 the anxiety and the discouragement and the, the fear, the worry comes from the fact that we think it's a political kingdom God's gonna bring, but it's not. God's kingdom is still strong. We've learned in this series that God's kingdom is still growing and nothing can stop it. No politician, no policy, no law. God's kingdom is different from man's kingdom. And Jesus didn't come to be your president. He came to be your savior. So Jesus clarifies his purpose. I didn't come to judge the financial. I didn't come to judge the legal. I came to judge spiritual matters. But not only does he clarify his purpose, he also diagnoses the man's problem. He informs the man that his primary problem is not financial or legal or even familial. He tells him your primary problem is actually spiritual. He informs the man that his problem, his ultimate problem is not a wallet problem. It's a worship problem. And so in his response, Jesus teaches not just the man, but his listeners and his readers, he teaches us about the dangers of covetousness. You see, in the parable, he tells us about a rich man who planned and who grew his net worth and who built and who trusted in his stuff and not in his savior. And in the parable, the man is referred to as a fool. Everyone say fool. The thing about that word fool, and we're going to talk about it more later, is that it has to do with your thinking. The man was worldly in his thinking. Not godly in his thinking. He was worldly in his thinking. He was rich toward men, but he was not rich toward God. And at the end of the parable, the Lord interjects and informs the man that his soul is being demanded of him. His soul is being required of him. And that everything you built 
And everything you saved will not be taken with you. So I would argue that in this parable, there are two lessons that we learn about the sin of covetousness. The first lesson we learn is we learn about the symptoms of covetousness. And then the second lesson that we learn is we learn about the solutions for covetousness. But I would argue that the first lesson we learn in this text, in this parable, in this passage, is we learn about the symptoms of covetousness. You see, because in this text, before Jesus even starts his parable, he warns this individual. He gives the man a warning. And the warning is not just for him. The warning is for every person who is in the audience and every person who is in this audience. And the warning that Jesus gives has to do with the sin and the temptation of coveting. He says, we need to take care and we need to be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. Now, I want to unpack that phrase or that sentence for you because I feel like there's a lot there that the English doesn't communicate. When Jesus says to take care, the, the Greek word there for take care means to take special note of something. It means to pay attention to something. It means to look out for something specific, for something in particular. Then when Jesus says, be on guard, the Greek word, therefore, be on guard, it means to look out for something. It means to keep watch for something. The implication here being that someone is under attack and they need to protect themselves from something. And what's interesting about both the phrase take care and the phrase be on guard is that they are both imperatives. What that, mean is, what that means is, is that they are commands. Jesus isn't suggesting it. He doesn't say, hey, if you have time, don't want to, you know, don't want to uh, uh, bother you. If, you. if you have time, you should be on guard. If you have time, you should take care. No, no, no. They are both imperatives. He is commanding us to take care. He is commanding us to be on guard. He is commanding us to pay attention. He is commanding us to keep watch. But what is he commanding us to be on guard from? Well, he says, the thing that we are to keep watch for and be on guard against is covetousness. Now, here's the thing about covetousness. Well, let me say this. The, the two words I just, two phrases I just gave you are both in the present tense, meaning that he's saying you should do it and not stop doing it. So he's not just saying, hey, be on guard uh, during, you know, on the week you get paid. Be on guard when you're watching certain advertisements. No, no, no. He says, be on guard and take care. And both of them are not just imperatives, but they are in the present sense. In other words, we are always to be on guard. There, there should never be a moment where we let our guard down. And he says, the thing that we are to be on guard against is the sin of coveting. And the Greek word, therefore, covetousness, literally means this. It means to have an idolatrous or inordinate desire, an idolatrous or inordinate desire to acquire more than you already have. I'm going to say that again. Because if you miss this definition, nothing else will matter in this message, okay? What are we to be aware of? What are we to protect ourselves against? Coveting. What is coveting? Coveting is to have an idolatrous 
and inordinate desire to acquire more than you already have, get this, irrespective of need. The word there, inordinate, is actually a word that Paul uses in the Greek. There's a, there's a word in, in the Greek New Testament that Paul literally just makes up that didn't exist before. In Greek, the word thumia means to desire something. Paul says that what happens is a lot of times when we desire something, it's, it's fine. It's not a bad thing. The problem is, is when we epithumia, when we over-desire something. When we over-desire something, it becomes an inordinate desire. And that's called an idol. That is called a counterfeit God. Little g God. And so coveting means to have an idolatrous, inordinate desire to acquire more than you already have, irrespective of need. But a lot of times we convince ourselves that we need whatever we want. But even if we get what we need, it's never enough. Because coveting is the false gospel that tells you that whatever you have, there's always a bit more. Always a bit more. Literally, the, the word there is to lust after or to grasp for more than you already have, irrespective of need. So what that means is, if you think about it, coveting can happen in any area of your life. Some of us, we are struggling with relational coveting. We, we're convinced that what's going to fix everything is a boyfriend or a girlfriend. What's going to fix everything is marriage, Right? For some of us, it's vocational. We're convinced that's what's going to fix something is a promotion. For many of us, it's financial. We're convinced that what's going to fix something is a little bit more money. If I can just pay this bill, if I can just get this credit card, whatever it is. But, 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 but the reality is, in light of that definition, every single one of us struggles with this to one degree or another. But I know in my heart, there are many times where even though I have what I need, what I need is not enough. What I, what, what I need and what I have is not enough. There's always more. That's what coveting is. Now, if you're anything like me, especially as I was prepping this week, you're probably thinking, man, I can sit this sermon out. This is for everybody else. I struggle with a lot of things, Pastor, but not this one. This is for the sinners. The reality, though, is, based on how Jesus speaks in this text, the question isn't if you struggle with it. The question is, to what degree do you struggle with it? So what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to give you some of the symptoms that someone who struggles with coveting displays. And as I walk through them, I want you to examine yourself I want you to ask yourself, am I struggling with this sin? Yes or no? So I got three symptoms, but let's start with the first one. The first symptom of someone who struggles with coveting is they don't think they struggle with coveting. <laughs> first symptom. If you don't think you got it, you got it. Why? Because the way it's written in the Greek, the implication here is that we are blinded to this sin. By nature, we are unaware of our struggle with coveting. 
You see, the man in the story is totally unaware. He does not know that he is struggling with coveting. Everything that he's doing is completely rational to him. Everything that he is doing makes total sense. I've been given more stuff, and instead of giving it to God or giving it to others, I'm going to just build more stuff. In his mind, it makes perfect sense. And the reason why he is building and not investing the way we would in our culture is because in those days, as there were no banks and there were no stock markets, building buildings and acquiring property was how someone would diversify, diversify and solidify their financial portfolio. There was no banks. There was no uh, stock market. So you did it by building more stuff, by acquiring more property. You see, but I would argue that one of the reasons why we don't see this sin in our lives, one of the reasons why we just completely miss it is because coveting, desiring more, greed, is very hard to measure and quantify. Like, it's hard to, like, what, what barometer are you using, right? There's a reason why Jesus doesn't say, hey, be on guard against adultery. He doesn't have to say that because adultery is pretty straightforward. You know if you've committed adultery, right? You wake up and you're like, wait, you're not my wife, right? Yeah, he doesn't say beware against theft because you know when you have stolen something. You know when you have murdered. The reason why Jesus says to beware is because greed and uh, coveting are hard to measure. They are hard to quantify. No one ever thinks they struggle with it. In all my years of ministry, I have never had someone come into my office and say, Pastor, I got a problem with greed. I got a problem with coveting. I just, I just want too much. I'm not satisfied. Never once has it happened and never will it happen because no one thinks they have a problem. And here's why. Because no matter how wealthy you are, there's always someone wealthier than you. There are people who are filthy rich and you would ask them, are you wealthy? Nah, you should see my boss. You should see my partner at the law firm. No one ever thinks they're wealthy. There's always someone wealthier than you. And that's literally the, the carrot at the end of the stick when it comes to this false gospel and this idol. That you think, if I ever have as much money as blank, then I'll be content. If I had what they had, relationally, spiritually, in whatever category, vocationally, if I had what they had, then I would be content. But if you are not content with what you have now, you will not be content with what you will have then. You won't. And that's what happens when you fall into this trap. You fall into next stage, next season idolatry. The, the next stage, next season idolatry says, if I'm single, once I'm dating, everything will get better. If I'm dating, once I'm engaged, everything will get better. If I'm engaged, once I get married, everything will get better. If I'm married, once I have kids, everything will get better. If I have kids, once they leave the house, everything will get better. If I'm working, once I retire, everything will get better. And it never gets better. 
Because nothing, if the thing that you are looking towards is not Jesus, it will always let you down. But that is the lie that we believe. And honestly, I don't blame the world for believing it because they don't have Jesus. But for someone who does, for someone who has actually experienced the, the beauty and, 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 and the, the, the glory of the gospel, I don't blame the world. But I do blame the church when we settle for the same idols that the world does. Here's the thing, because here's a, a, another lie that, that people, that, that gets promoted in this conversation. You know, people will say, you know, I, I used to like that person, but then they got money and they changed. You know, the problem with wealthy people is that they're just, uh, they're the worst, right? But here's the thing. Money, according to scripture, is neutral. Totally neutral. It's not good or bad. So money doesn't change you. Money just reveals you. The lack of money reveals you and the presence of money reveals you. It doesn't change you. It just reveals you. Whether you are in poverty or in prosperity, money will always reveal you. It won't change you. It will reveal you. So if someone's a jerk after they get money, that means they were a jerk before they got money. If someone is stingy once they get money, that means they were stingy before they got money. So the person who's like, oh, you know, I really want to give, but I just got to get my finances in order. You can get a million dollars tomorrow and you still won't give. Because money doesn't change you. Money reveals you. And back to what I said earlier, since no one thinks they're wealthy, we assume that this is just a rich person problem. And so if I'm not rich... I must not have this problem. The problem is, is that by the world standards, you are rich because our nation is not just the wealthiest nation today. We are the wealthiest nation in human history. And yet there's never been a nation, there's never been a culture more marked by discontentment and dissatisfaction than this nation. All that stuff doesn't satisfy but if you think it's a rich person problem and no one thinks they're rich, then no one has a problem. But I would argue that someone who even is poor is even more tempted to fall into this trap because at least the person with money will eventually be let down by it. But the person who doesn't have money has to just assume that money will fix everything. So you can be dirt poor and be just as covetousness as the millionaire. You can be just as, as struggling with coveting as the millionaire. There's a Roman proverb that says this. Money is like seawater. The more you drink, the more you want. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says this. He who loves money, now mind you, it doesn't say he who has money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's counterintuitive when you think about it. The only way you will ever be content with whatever money you have is when you are not looking to that money for contentment. It's so counterintuitive. It's when you stop looking towards money for contentment and you start looking towards Jesus for contentment that you then become with, content with whatever money you have. But if you love money... 
more than you love Jesus, you will never be satisfied with the money. Your wealth and your income will never satisfy you. And here's how I know. If 18-year-old Will, when I became a believer at 18, if 18-year-old Will, and based on what I was making back then, knew how much 37-year-old Will made, 18-year-old Will would think, oh, he, he's the most content person on earth. And throughout all those years of walking with Jesus, with every new job and every promotion and every raise, I'm like, okay, this is, oh, got my raise. I, I'm set. Within a few days, a few months, oh, man, if we just had a little bit more money. It doesn't work. And guess what? If 47-year-old Will and 67-year-old Will has even more money, he's still going to be just as dissatisfied with money as this Will is. But man, we are so quick to believe that lie. And we burn ourselves out and we sacrifice our families for just a little bit more money, for just another promotion. And we talk about how, you know, child sacrifice, that's, that's an Old Testament thing. There's no such, you know, good thing we're not primitive anymore. There's a lot of children being sacrificed on the altar of money. Child sacrifice is still alive and well. Time, moments, just because we need a little bit more money, a little bit more stability, a little bit more security. I think another reason why we miss it, though, is because this sin, this, uh, uh, this struggle, it looks different from person to person. And when Jesus says to, to be on the lookout, to be on guard, he says of all kinds of coveting. In other words, it looks different. It's never, it's never the same. And because we are so unique, our idol structure is just as unique as our fingerprint. And so the way idols work out in your life are different from how they manifest in my life. There are different variations of this. There are different expressions of this. There are different degrees of this. And something that we talked about uh, a couple years ago when we were in our idolatry series is we said that every person, whether believer or not, is motivated by three, one of three root idols, significance, satisfaction, and security. A significance person goes to money as an idol and they use money to feed their significance. And so they buy things in order to be liked, in order to be approved of. They, they buy the right clothes, they go to the right restaurants, they live in the right neighborhoods in order to be accepted by the people around them. A satisfaction person goes to money as an idol, but they go to money in order to live the good life, in order to go on vacations and, 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 and have experiences, and it's all about the experience. A security person doesn't spend their money at all, they just save it. They hoard it. They just save, save, save. Because in their mind, security is not found in the Lord. It's found in money. And so the more money I have, the more stability I have. And what's funny is that all those people judge one another. None of them think they struggle with coveting. None of them think they're idolizing money. And they all judge each other. Oh, look at the savers. They're just wasting their life. Oh, look at the spenders. They're just wasting their life. And every single one of us is struggling with the same exact sin. But because it looks different, it is harder to detect. So that is the first symptom. The second symptom, though, that someone who struggles with coveting displays 
is that someone who struggles with coveting, the sin of covetousness, subtly over time starts to believe a false gospel that provides a pseudo-righteousness and offers a temporary status, temporary wealth, and temporary stability. Literally, you start to believe a false gospel over time, a counterfeit gospel about a counterfeit God, lowercase g. You see, the rich man in the parable, he wasn't gospel-centered, he was greed-centered. The truths that he thinks to himself and the gospel that he preaches to himself were not biblical truths, and it wasn't a gospel message. It wasn't the real, genuine gospel. And if you look at the passage, he's actually talking to himself. He, he, he looks at himself and he sees all the things that he has and he talks to his soul. And essentially what he's saying to his soul is this. Soul, here is how you find hope in a hopeless world. Here is how you find safety in a dangerous world. Here's how you find stability in a shakable world. And the man is literally preaching a gospel to himself. In Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, uh, Pastor Ryan looked at this a few months ago. He was talking about how the psalmist there, he, he's struggling and he's discouraged and he's, he's downcast. And he, instead of just listening to his soul passively, he actively preaches to his soul. And he says, soul, why are you downcast? And he tells his soul, put your hope in God, your Savior and your God. He, he preaches to his soul. I don't know if you know this, but every single person in this room right now preaches a gospel to themselves. When you are anxious, you preach a gospel to yourself. When you are worried, you preach a gospel to yourself. When you feel insecure, you preach a gospel to yourself. The question is, is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if the way that you get through anxiety is the, 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 the humanistic man-made gospel, you, you're great, you got potential, you're awesome, you're going to get through this. You're none of those things, one. But two, that only gets you so far. Or you know what, things are falling apart, but man, the bank account is full. My retirement is set. The stocks are looking good. What do you preach to yourself when things get hard? Whatever you preach to yourself when you're struggling is the gospel you actually believe. It's interesting because this has become such a gospel in our day that literally wealth has become a form of righteousness in our cultural moment. It's literally a form of righteousness. So, so for example, we were talking about this in our teaching team uh, on Tuesday. We have a ministry out in Orange Mound that we partner with and have partnered with over a year. And God has done amazing things through that ministry. But why is it that when we think of people who are in need, we think of Orange Mound and not Germantown? Why? Why do we think of Orange Mound and not Carville? Orange Mound and not Eads? We don't. Why? Because in our mind, whether we believe, whether we say it out loud or not, we believe that wealthy people are better off and they don't need the gospel. It's the, it's the poor people. It's the broken people who need the gospel. That's how dangerous this false gospel is, that you assume that because someone lives in a big house, they must be closer to God. 
And the reality is, according to Scripture, the person who's going to have a harder time getting into the kingdom of heaven is the rich person, not the poor person. Because they are going to be tempted to think that since wealth gets me everything I want in this world, it will get me everything I want in the next world. It's interesting that we live in a culture that openly discusses, openly, openly discusses things like politics and sexuality. And the only topic in our culture that is off limits is money. With social media, people will talk to you about everything. And in our world, politics, sexuality, fair game. But don't ask me about my wallet. The only thing left in our culture that's holy is money. It's the only thing we set apart. Even in the church, even now, as I'm talking about this, you're like, oh, here, this is exactly why I don't go to church because they're always asking for my money. It's not your money. Amen. It's God's money. But we get defensive. Talk to me about anything else. But for some of us, money is more holy in our eyes than God is. In the text, Jesus says the man is a fool. The word there, fool, has to do with your thinking. It means to be senseless. It means to be godless. It means to reject and ignore God's truths. It literally means to be rationally out of touch with reality. It means to have the wrong definitions for things like wealth and success and abundance and inheritance, it means to have all the wrong definitions for things that God has already defined. And here's the thing about this man. It's real easy for us to look at a guy like this and say, oh, well, you know what? He probably wasn't a religious guy. That was his problem. He probably was an atheist. He probably hated God. But in the story, there is no indication of that. And because Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, there's a good chance the guy he was talking about was a Jewish man. So what that meant was, is that he believed in God. He went to the synagogue. He celebrated all the Jewish festivals. See, this man, he wasn't a theological atheist. He was a functional atheist. You know what a functional atheist is? When in your head you believe God exists, but with your hands, you don't behave like God exists. A lot of us, including me, as I, using this text to evaluate my life, I am still shocked that even though theologically I'm not an atheist, functionally I tend to live like an atheist. I want to live a God-proof life. I want God to be an option when I got to break glass in case of emergency. But other than that, let me handle it. And many of us are not theological atheists, but we are functional atheists. We, we live, like the author of Ecclesiastes says, we live as if there's only life under the sun. As if this material world was the only thing that existed. And yeah, we acknowledge God here and there when we have to. But God, I'll go to you when I can't handle it anymore. So the reason why Jesus calls out this lie, he literally says, your life does not consist in the abundance of things because that is the gospel the world teaches. Jesus knows that the location of your treasure 
will always reveal the condition of your heart. The location of your treasure will always reveal the condition of your heart. And remember, I already read this to you. I'll say it again. It's not wrong to possess money. What's wrong is when money possesses you. It's not the having of money that's the problem. It's the love of money that leads to ruin and destruction. Money is a great gift, but it is a terrible God. And according to Matthew 13, when we looked at the parable of the soils, the third soil in particular, one of the reasons why the third soil doesn't produce lasting fruit is because it says that the deceitfulness of riches comes in and chokes it out. The seed of the word is choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. And the word there, deceitfulness, means to be misled. It means to be mistaught. It means to be disillusioned. And so riches come in and preach a false gospel to you. And then after a while, if you're not careful, you end up believing a false gospel instead of the true, the true gospel. If we are not careful, we will end up believing a false gospel that offers false security, false righteousness, and a false inheritance. Then the third and final symptom is this. Someone who struggles with covetousness views themselves as an owner and not a steward. See, everything the man had in this passage was borrowed. Everything the man had was loaned. He was renting it out. Even his soul, it says. Because in the text, when God shows up, he says, today your soul is required of you. The, the Greek word therefore required means to give something back to the person to whom it belongs. So even his soul didn't belong to him. If you're breathing, your breath doesn't belong to you. If you have children, your children don't belong to you. Nothing in our lives belongs to us. We are not owners, church. We are stewards. And one of the symptoms of someone who is believing this lie is that they start thinking they are owners and not stewards. And we know that he saw himself as an owner and not a steward because the one thing he says more than anything, he doesn't mention God once. He says, me and I, I and me. His language reveals that he is self-centered. He is not for God or for others. He is about himself. Not God's kingdom, but his empire. Now, how do we know if we are seeing ourselves as owners and not stewards? How do we know? Well, we know that we are doing that when, when we have money, we get arrogant. And when we don't have money, we get anxious. You see, the guy in the passage is convinced that he's the one who earned it, that he's the one who did it. It says that the land produced plentifully. You know how much he had to do with that? Nothing. Because the only one who determines that the land produces is God. Okay? But because he thought it was him, he became arrogant. And, and, and when, when, one of the ways you know is when your money makes you proud. 
When your money makes you arrogant. When your money becomes a filter by which you evaluate other people. Look at that family member over there. Still struggling. Still have debt. I manage my stuff. Look what I've done. Look how much I've acquired. Look at my retirement. We live in a culture where the poor look down on the rich and the rich look down on the poor. And we use money as a filter all the time. And so one of the ways you know you are starting to become an owner instead of a steward is when money makes you arrogant. But I would say that the, the other way is when you don't have money or when your money's being threatened. Jesus in this text, right after the, the I read it to you, right after the parable, he talks about anxiety. Why? Because one of the ways you know if money is your idol, well, one of the ways you know if anything's your idol, if, if, if the potential of losing something, whatever that thing is, makes you worried and anxious, there's a good chance that thing is in the place of God. But in this context, he says, you know you are moving in that direction when anxiety is your response to your money being threatened. That's why I would argue that money struggles, even though they can lead to a lot of issues, there's a lot of marriages that divorce because of money struggles. There's a lot of families that divide because of money issues. I would say money struggles more than any other struggles have the most opportunity to either increase your fear if you're an owner or increase your faith if you're a steward. There's nothing like money struggles, man. You feel hopeless, you feel guilty, you feel less than, you feel inferior. And, 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 and you have an opportunity though every time money struggles happen to either increase your fear because you're the one that owns all of it or to increase your faith because you're stewarding all of it. The reason why Jesus says you can't serve both God and money is because out of all the things in this world that we are tempted to worship, money is the thing that makes us most, that reminds us the most of God. Money is not God, but money has God-like qualities. So that's why sometimes when we open up our bank account and the money's there, we feel this assurance. We feel this security. We feel this significance. Like, look at me. Money is not God, but money can make us feel the way God makes us feel. And so that's why Jesus says you can't serve God or money. You either find all of it in me or you find all of it in money. The only difference is, is that when you die, which 10 out of 10 people die, I don't know if you know that, when you die, if it's God, that can't be taken away. But if it's money, it will be taken away. So that is the symptoms. I want to conclude this morning by looking at the solution. What is the solution for covetousness? What do we do? Now that we have a better understanding of the seriousness of the problem, I want to conclude by looking at the solution for said problem. And I would argue that in light of this passage, in light of this parable, we are actually given three solutions to our problem of coveting. One solution has to do with our head, one has to do with our heart, and one has to do with our hands. The first solution to our problem with coveting that we all have is at the head level. We have to change the way we think. Why? Because I've already mentioned numerous times throughout this text that part of the problem is how we think. The word foolish has to do with how you think. 
the word anxiety has to do with how you think. When Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, it has to do with how you think. So in order for us to try to rectify this struggle that we all have, we have to change how we think. In other words, one of the ways that we combat the lies of the world is with the truths of the word. If, if, I'll, if I'm just constantly being bombarded with lies and never at any point expose myself to truths, I'm not going to automatically just repent and call sin what it is. No, no. The only way to combat the lies of this world is with the truths of the word. The word of God is a mirror that reveals the sins that we are tempted to overlook. And it is one of the tools that God uses, not just to reveal our sin, but to renew our minds. You know, it's interesting that in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is one of the passages I referenced when I talk about the love of money leads to a, a, a bunch of problems, right? It's interesting that in that text, right before it, the, the guys that I disciple and I were working through First and Second Timothy, and we were looking at this text the other day at my house, and what I found interesting about that passage is that Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But one of the mistakes that I've made, and maybe you've made too, is when I hear godliness, I always think godliness has to do with my behavior, behaving in a godly way. But if you look at the word for godly, godliness has nothing to do with your behaving. It has everything to do with your thinking. It's what you think about God that makes you godly or not. So Paul says that if you are godly in your thinking, there's contentment. But if you are not godly in your thinking, there will never be contentment. If, if I don't have the right views about God, if I don't have the right views about money, if I don't have the right views about what true wealth is and uh, true riches are, if I don't have the right views, I will never, ever be content. Godliness is what produces contentment. And since the word of God is living and active and never comes back void, it alone can reveal our sins redefine our terms and renew our minds so that's the first solution the second solution to our problem with coveting is not at the head level is at the heart level not only are we to change how we think we are also to change what we believe i i told you this when we were looking at the story the man in the story is preaching a false gospel to his heart he is preaching a pseudo counterfeit gospel to his soul and so I would argue that the best remedy from exposure to a counterfeit gospel is embracing the real gospel, is reminding yourself of the genuine gospel. Why? Because the word of God points you to the work of God. The it is written points you to the it is finished. Here's the thing, guys. Here's what I need you to understand. The only thing that can make you generous is generosity. The only way you will ever become a generous giver, because this is usually where, where people in my role end up going, you know, falling off the, the, going off the reserve a little bit. Here, they, they get all the way to this point, and then they start using guilt instead of grace. But the only way that we can ever become generous is in response to generosity. The only way we will ever become generous givers is when we admit that we are humble receivers. 
As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the apostle Paul is talking to the church in Corinth and he's collecting money. And the church in Corinth is the only church that hasn't given what they promised. And Paul could easily use guilt. He actually says as much. He says, I can guilt you and make you do this as an apostle. But instead of using guilt, Paul uses grace. And he says, if you look at Jesus Christ, you see that even though he was rich, he became poor so that through him you might become rich. And so Paul uses the gospel, he uses grace in order to motivate them to give. He doesn't try to control his hand, their hands, he, he compels their hearts. In that passage of 2 Corinthians 8, we discover both the bad news, which we are spiritually bankrupt, and yet we discover the good news, which is in Christ we have been given riches. We have been given a greater inheritance. At the cross, Jesus Christ stepped into our poverty so that by faith in him, we might step into his wealth. At the cross, Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that by faith in him, we might be clothed in righteousness. At the cross, Jesus Christ was treated as an orphan so that by faith in him, we might receive his inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you are a, talking to Christians here, he says, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation of people of God's own possession. And that phrase there, God's own possession, it literally means in the Greek, God's treasured possession. That in Christ, you are seen as valuable. In Christ, you are seen as worthy. And the word there, treasure, means to keep something safe, to store something up because of its great value. And so what that means is to the degree that you understand that and to the degree that you increase your adoration of God, to that same degree, you will lower your anxiety about money. It's funny because in the passage in verse 32 and 33, Jesus says, fear not, O little flock, for God has given you the kingdom. And then immediately after that, in the next verse, he says, so sell all that you have and give. See, but a religious person, here's what they would say. They would flip that. They would completely ignore the order and they would say this. Hey, hey, if you give today, if you give, maybe one day God will give back to you. Hey, if you give, sell all you have and give it all away, maybe one day God will give you the kingdom. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, fear not, Little flock, that's an indicative, a gospel indicative. Fear not, little flock, for God has already given you the kingdom. So it's not that I give in order that God might give to me. It's that God has already given me everything, and now I'm willing to give him anything. You see the difference? The kingdom is already yours. If you are in Christ, there's no reason to fear. There's no reason to be anxious. And when you understand the generosity and the grace of God, your only response is generosity yourself. When you understand that you are rich towards God, it allows you to be generous towards men. The more the word of God renews your head and the more the work of God reforms your heart, the more you start to have biblical definitions for wealth, for inheritance, 
for security, for stability, for success. In the gospel is where true and genuine abundance is found. In the gospel is where true riches and inheritance is found. And what this does when you understand it is it kills the prosperity gospel. You know what the thing that most bothers me about the prosperity gospel? Not only that it's false and demonic, but it bothers me because the person who gets up and preaches the prosperity gospel says this. Hey, if you come to Jesus, he'll get you whatever you want. If you come to Jesus, he'll get you whatever gift you're looking for. If you come to Jesus, he will get you whatever blessing you desire. But here's the problem with the prosperity gospel. And here's what it totally misses. Jesus didn't come to bring a gift. Jesus is the gift. He didn't come to give you a reward. He is the reward. He didn't come to give you a prize. He is the prize. He didn't come to give you a safety net. He is the safety net. And it bothers me when we go to Jesus and we say, man, I really like you, but you are a means to an end. Jesus didn't come to be a means to an end. Jesus is the end in himself. Even if he never gives you anything else, he's giving you the gospel. Even if he takes you out today, he's giving you the gospel. We said last week, there's nothing guaranteed. There's nothing deserved. So anything above wrath is grace. Anything above wrath is generosity. Jesus Christ is the gift. It's not Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me a spouse. Hey, Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me a raise. No, 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 Jesus is it. And I don't blame the world to do it because the world doesn't know any better. But it breaks my heart when we do it because we do know better. And the third and final solution is not just head, not just heart, but it's our hands. At the hand level, we are to give. Why? Well, because a renewed mind and a redeemed heart will produce a responsive hand. And some of you are like, how dare you, after all this, ask me for my money? How dare you bring up my money again? Who is Jesus to say that he wants my money? Here's the thing. Not only is Jesus asking for your money, he's asking for way more than your money. Jesus says, I don't just want your wallet, I want your worship. And if you give me your worship, the wallet will follow. But Jesus didn't come to uh, manipulate your hands. He came to redeem your heart. And as he changes your heart, he then compels your hands. Not with manipulative grace, but with motive, not with manipulative guilt, but with motivating grace. I would argue that a closed hand is an indicator of a hard heart. The hand that doesn't generously give reveals a heart that hasn't graciously received. And we know that because the rich young ruler, he thinks he's obeyed everything. I'm perfect. I'll, everything, I've obeyed everything since my youth. Jesus says, then give. Sorry, can't do that. Why? Because his God wasn't Jesus. His God was his money. His, his, his failure to give with his hands revealed the condition of his heart. And then on the other side, Zacchaeus, Jesus didn't even ask him to give. Zac All Jesus says is, I, I want to go to your house. And Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy of God that his only response is to give it all away. 
once he, he meets the real God, he is willing to give up the counterfeit one. So if the word reveals our hearts and the work redeems our hearts, then giving reminds our hearts that our hope is not in money. It's found in Christ. So we give not just because we're commanded to in the word of God, but because we are compelled to through the work of God. And to the degree that an individual understands that they are truly rich towards God, to that same degree, they will start to become generous towards men. Amen. Hello, High Point Church and Home Families. My name is Whitney Clay, and this is Kristen Pruitt. Hi. And we're so excited to be um, just spending this time with you this morning where we can just unpack the things the Lord has been teaching us together. And we hope that wherever you're watching, whether you're gathered with friends and family or whether you're watching by yourself, um, that you'll just remember the things the Lord's taught you today and just be able to take those to heart. And we want to help you unpack those. And so we're excited to be together. Um, Danielle is moderating, and so I'd encourage you in whatever device you're using to get on and chat with her. We'd love to know where you're watching from and maybe interact with us, ask, answer some of these questions as well. And then there's a QR code right above Kristen's head. Um, so you can pull out your phone on your camera and scan it or go to highpointonline.com slash respond. But we'd love to know where you're watching from and what the Lord's teaching you and how we can best help support you right where you are. So we're so glad you're here. Yeah, we're excited today. Yeah, It was a good sermon. It was a good sermon. Um, so Pastor Will has given us some questions. Um, and this one I really liked. Um, it's in the passage. Jesus tells us to be urgently on guard against all kinds of coveting. Mm -hmm. um, what makes this particular sin so hard to detect? And why don't we tend to have the urgency that Jesus is calling us to have? Awesome. So I like that question. I really liked it too. And I thought it was interesting how he kind of kicked off his sermon with that idea of covetousness and that definition. We were talking about this that he gave us, which means to have an idolatrous or inordinate desire to acquire more than you already have, irrespective of needs. So you're mm -hmm. always wanting more. Um, and I just thought it was interesting, too, how he said to be on guard, like, continually. It's mm -hmm. an imperative. It's a command to continually be aware, to continually to be on guard. And I don't think I've ever heard a sermon about covetousness <laughs> preached in quite that way. You know, yeah. it's more like, let's talk about the big sins, but this one, which is so hard mm -hmm. to detect because it's so hard to measure. Um, I don't know that I've ever really heard a sermon directly at the heart of things, yet Jesus makes it so important. Even mm -hmm. we were talking about how when Pastor Will brought out that that third soil is choked out by the deceitfulness of yeah. riches. Like we really do have to be on guard and be aware. And Jesus is reminding us and calling us to that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you, it's easy to overlook maybe yeah. when you're just looking at things and you're like, oh, let me focus on these harder sins or these things. Because this might be one too where you're like, oh, I've got that under control. Yeah. I can just check it off my list when it's no continually we need to be on guard yeah. against all these types of greed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you? Um, yeah. I thought it was interesting um, how in Greek it's is someone who's under attack. Yeah. Um, and so... 
and they're both present tense, so take care, be on guard. Um, yeah, I just found that super interesting. Um, it's something that we always are going to have to do and always going to have to continue to do. Yeah. Um, so no one's immune from <laughs> this sin. And he said it's not if you struggle with it, it's yeah. to what degree. To what degree. <laughs> it wasn't even like how, it was like to what degree right. do you actually, you know, right. um, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah. Um, and I like to, in kind of the same frame of reference, Pastor Will said, Jesus informs us there's all kinds of coveting. This means it can look different from person to person mm-hmm. and from season to season. What does the sin of coveting tend to look like in your life? Yeah. It's a big question. (laughs) It is a big question. Um, Yeah, I think even from season to season, uh, for me, it it looks different. Um, I think I can get really discontent um, or dissatisfied in my different seasons of life. Um, And I, I think kind of what the Lord's been teaching me um, I think specifically probably over the last like two years is just to abide in him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if I am not like daily abiding in him, um, spending time with him daily, I think this is really easy to get discontent, yeah. be, um, distracted. I think I, um, struggle with materialism um and oftentimes like that is my distraction um from things and kind of how I cope I guess with my discontentment I don't know um so yeah I think for me just like a heart check of like I have to be spending time with him daily yeah um having that time with him um and understanding like only he can satisfy me and I think it's so easy to not recognize those things Mm -hmm. like these are good things that we want and things that we have and things we desire and yet it's when it becomes that idol or when it becomes like I don't want to deal with this I'm going to do this yeah but it's so sneaky it's not you know like but we were talking with Danielle earlier it's Mm -hmm. just like anything else you would use to Mm -hmm. cope you know whatever that is and that's what's so tricky about it right like with when it comes to coveting um I thought too it was interesting how he talked about it reveals like the satisfaction security and significance mm. like it reveals those three areas mm-hmm. and I don't know for you like I, when he said that it immediately revealed <laughs> in me which one I am and I was uh-huh. like oh okay <laughs> like because mine's definitely significance you know mm. and it's like so these material things like yeah. am I using them to feel important or to feel significant instead of relying on Jesus Mm -hmm. and on what he's done for me. And I think that's where it's so easy for those things to slip in. And that's why Jesus says to be on guard because we don't even realize, I think, that we're doing it until we're daily abiding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a beautiful reminder of where the source of our significance, satisfaction, and security comes from. Yeah. And we even talked about too, like just the scrolling on social media, like how sneaky it can be just sitting there yeah watching reels or looking at posts or whatever yeah here's this Um, thing you need yeah exactly (laughs) or here's this you know beautiful life that someone has Mm -hmm. and feeling um like oh like why don't I have that or why can't I have that um yeah and when he talked about the different seasons Mm -hmm. because we were saying maybe that is why it's so hard to detect because if you're in a different season than me, what you want is different than what I want. So we might both be struggling with it, but never know Mm -hmm. because it looks different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So another question Um, in the gospel, we are given three solutions for coveting. And the three have to do with our thinking, which is the head 
um, our believing, which is the heart, and our responding, so the hand. So out of these, or out of the three solutions, uh, which one stood out to you the most? Yeah, um, and I would love to know, maybe share with Danielle or turn to someone that you're watching with and kind of share which of these three stood out to you. Um, for me, I think probably the head. Um, if you spend time in the second part of that passage, which talks about like, look at the birds and look mm-hmm. at the lilies and consider, like think on these things. Think mm-hmm. of how um, God is providing and how he's caring. I think a lot of times the battle is always in my mind. Yeah. Like my heart knows that Jesus is Lord, but sometimes my head doesn't <laughs> follow because I'm like, exactly what he talked about. Well, I can just be in control. Mm-hmm. I can just do all these things. And yet my head needs to remind myself of God's word. Yeah. It needs to actually know it and let it transform my life that I have no control. Like it's really a false sense of control. (laughs) And the more I'm spending time abiding, spending time in his word, it's renewing my mind Mm. to really rest in him and to not be anxious Mm -hmm. over those things because I can't control them anyway. And I loved the reminder um, in second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, pastor will mentioned this and I wanted to read it Um, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And I just love that. That's a beautiful reminder of the gospel of what Jesus did for us. He met us where we were. Mm -hmm. He met us in our impoverished, sinful state, yet took that on so that we might become rich in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's really where all of our hopes and everything needs to rest. Our satisfaction, our security, our significance all comes from Him. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? I would say head level and heart. Yeah. Um, Kind of like a combination of both of those. Um, Yeah. So... I liked um, when he talked about uh, Jesus doesn't give you gifts. Jesus is the gift. Um, I really love that. Um, So, yeah, I would say probably head and heart for me. Yeah. Um, And maybe even different in different seasons. Different day to day. Yeah. (laughs) So. The different reminders that we need. Yes. (laughs) Um, I love that, like, exactly what you said. God's already given us the kingdom, Mm -hmm. and so now we can give, like, because of what He's done for us, because we are rich in Christ. Mm -hmm. We don't have to hold on to those things so tightly, because He really is the one who's in control, and He's called us to steward those things. And I think um, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, I just have this, I'll just do this, but it's all connected. Like, Mm -hmm. when He said um, that your closed hand is a closed heart, Mm -hmm. like, it really is your generosity depends on how much you know that God has been generous toward you. Right. And I thought that was a really beautiful statement. Yeah. And I need to be reminded of that daily, like of God's generosity toward me. So I can be generous toward others. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so for you today, as you're sharing, as you're talking, this is a lot to unpack and it's kind of heavy. Yeah. I feel like it's probably one because we don't talk about it a lot. We probably don't want to talk about it. You know, we're like, let's just, eh." Um, but we need to deal with this Mm -hmm. because Jesus tells us to be on guard against it. And so today, as you're unpacking that with the people you're with or sharing with Danielle, as you're moderating, we'd love to know what the Lord's teaching you again. Mm -hmm. So let us know, reach out to us with hypeoneonline.com slash respond, um, because we'd love to be able to help you right where you are. And I think, like you said, the important thing about just abiding in God's word daily and letting Mm -hmm. it transform our mind and our heart and our hands. Mm -hmm. Um, If in this season, you're interested in maybe getting into God's word a little bit more um, at the top of the 
kind of the sermon today, uh, Pastor Roger actually mentioned two Advent series that we're going to have. And so we want to make those available for you, remind you if maybe you missed that. Um, But John Piper has an Advent devotional called Good News of Great Joy. And I think that's free to download online. And then Matt Chandler has one that's a family Advent devotional that you can do with your family. Yeah, Yeah. with your kiddos. So if you're looking for that as you head into Christmas, those are two great options to be able to get into God's Word and spend time together. Um, But we love you guys. We're so excited that you're here. If you're in the area, come join us at our East Memphis or Carterville location. Uh, We'd love to see you on a Sunday. And if you're watching from out of town, let us know because we'd love to be able to continue to resource you or to even help you find a local body to gather with. But we're so glad you're gathering with us. So yeah, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday. Bye guys.